I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guests today are Drs. Edgar Francisco Danielson and Gregoire Pierre, psychoanalysts practicing in New York City and the hosts of the podcast, Discussions on Psychoanalysis. For more, you can visit their websites, edgardanielson.com, that's E-D-G-A-R-D-D-A-N-I-E-L-S-E-N.com, Gregoire Pierre at newyorkpsychoanalyst.com, that's N-E-W-Y-O-R-K-psychoanalyst.com. And be sure to follow their podcast, Discussions on Psychoanalysis, available at SoundCloud, Twitter, Facebook, iTunes, and podcast streaming platforms. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. As with all Rendering Unconscious podcast episodes, there is a video accompanying this episode at YouTube. Just visit Trapart Films' YouTube channel, that's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film at YouTube, or search for Rendering Unconscious podcast. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. You can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics and Poetry from Trapart Books 2019. For more information, you can visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T R A P A R T.net. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa 23 Carl. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A-2-3-C-A-R-L. Your support is very appreciated. Thank you so much for supporting Rendering Unconscious Podcast and all of my other creative endeavors. Welcome. And my first question is, why did you all decide to start your podcast? Oh, well, I will, I will defer to, to Gregoire on this because then our podcast uh, is uh, it's Gregoire's child. So <laughs> well, we might say it this way. Uh, why? Um, well, um, I guess it started as um, the thoughts started when the thought came up when we were having a group P 
peer group meetings, uh, Edgar and um, Tina and uh, Peters and myself. Uh, Edgar and Tina could be can be heard in one of the podcasts, uh, the one on racism, the first one on racism. And well, I, I thought that um, they might be content uh, for enough to share, but then I we. It wasn't clear how to do that. Um, and we're talking about probably uh, uh, 2015, 2016. And well, eventually I realized that uh, creating a podcast was uh, possible and not so difficult technically. And well, I wanted to, then Edgar decided to come along and I wanted to share with people outside of our community or within if they wanted to a different perception of psychoanalysis um, when Edgar and I started talking about what we wanted to do uh, Edgar I'm going to speak for you Edgar Edgar came up Thank with you. <laughs> you're very I welcome. will add something I will add something oh you will of I'm course. sure you will I will <laughs> Anyway, yes. uh, he mentioned that, and I, that's really the core of discussions on psychoanalysis, is that psychoanalysis doesn't work that way. Meaning, <laughs> and especially for me, being very tired of going to some conferences or being participating in a class and listen to people who display the practice, that seems so... Um, far from my experience of it and from in general i would say and also from my experience as someone who has been trained and who practiced for some years in france and how you could really change the narrative around what it means to be in a room with a patient in a room or uh, through a screen uh, as we are doing now a lot of the time but uh, the inner experience, the difficulty of it, how we don't really know exactly what we do, how what to attach ourselves to. Do we only refer to psychoanalytic theories? Do we try to only refer to one psychoanalytic theory? Do we refer to etc.? And I wanted us, um, Edgar and myself, to share the struggle, I guess, and to also mm -hmm. show how uh, psychoanalysis could be thought and practiced differently, also from a cultural uh, place, knowing that in France, even if it's not a clear cut, uh, you will have, I think, a fundamentally different understanding of psychoanalysis uh, in terms of legitimate discourse. I, I, I would like to add a couple of things. One is that Grégoire uh, uh, mentioned uh, the peer group. Uh, just to, to give us some context there, uh, when uh, we began our training as psychoanalysts, uh, we listened to an instructor say, saying something like, I've been in, a, he said, I've been in a peer group for 35 years or so, he said. Uh, and I, I, want, I would like to invite you to, to explore that as well. So uh, that night we began the conversations and we came together, four of us, four candidates. Uh, and what was fascinating about the group is that, uh, for example, our colleague Tina Paul is from Germany. 
Clegoire is from France. Um, I am from Puerto Rico, and our colleague Peter is, was born and raised in the United States. So we 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 came uh, three different languages, four different cultural backgrounds, and as we met on a, a monthly basis, uh, we realized that we have very rich discussions that would look at psychoanal uh, psychoanalysis from different lenses, through different lenses, including the cultural uh, one. So uh, one thing that uh, in fact happens in our podcast is that Gregoire and I uh, are able to talk from a different perspective uh, in the sense, not only of our theories or uh, frames, psychoanalytic frames, but also that we come from different cultural uh, settings. Uh, I, for example, just to give an example, I come from a, a Puerto Rico, which is a, a colony <laughs> of the United States. And, and therefore, um, a, a lot of my own understanding, uh, I have to deconstruct that because it has been through uh, the colonized uh, experience. While Gregoire, coming from France, as you can imagine, Okay, so I'll leave it at there. Not a colony. Uh, uh, <laughs> but you have colonies which influence the culture too. Uh, so, so our discussions uh, usually uh, uh, bring something of this flavor of our differences. So it's, uh, the podcast is a celebration of our differences. Um, and I'm trying to, to understand in what ways we can bridge uh, from one place to another, uh, from one location internal location from an, uh, to another internal location. Uh, so, so I just wanted to give that context about the peer group because it, it allowed us to, to create a rich space uh, for discussions and disagreements. Um, yeah. No, I love your podcast and I love the back and forth that you have and how you bounce ideas off of one another and that you also talk about not just theory, but you often bring in like kind of case examples or examples of something that happened during your day or in a session or something mm -hmm. and um, really help to bring kind of the content to life in that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we try to do that, but we have to balance uh, sharing uh, specific mm -hmm. clinical information and uh, our patient's privacy. That's something, mm -hmm. and, and our privacy too. That's something we... Uh, are very attentive to make sure that mm -hmm. uh, we never that whatever we talk about clinically is not is really not something people could be identified with. Uh, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah it's be, very uh, big. That's where the editing yeah. comes in. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you can talk freely, no. and then you're like, no, not this, not this, <laughs> not this, not this. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the, the one one important detail that uh, I think we're still struggling with this, Gregoire. Uh, since the beginning, we were we were pondering who the audience, who is our audience. Yeah, we don't uh, know. We don't. We know. don't struggle. <laughs> we just don't know. <laughs> we, we don't know. Well, that's true. We don't struggle. We we realize that we don't know. Uh, and initially, we were thinking: should we address this to clinicians? Are we uh, 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 addressing people who are not clinicians but are interested in psychoanalysis? Uh, or mental health in general, who, who are those who would like to, or li uh, literally listen to us? Uh, we, we don't know, we don't know. 
And yeah. uh, throughout the years, we have tried to gauge uh, through different, uh, in different ways, uh, who is listening to us. And up to this moment, we, we don't know. Uh, I mean, we know uh, people yeah. who, who subscribe to the forum, but it's, oh, yes. yeah. <laughs> Are you? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, at least now we know. <laughs> at, at least we yeah, know. We, yeah, we, uh, <laughs> no, I, we I know you. Our, yeah, and to, to follow what Edgar said, we, I think we decided to try to do something, uh, um, especially when we started, but then it became more something in the background and we didn't really think about it specifically, mm -hmm. but something that at least we would be happy with. Uh, so mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, like when my idea is when you offer a gift, of course, sometimes you're going to offer something that is not your taste at all. But still, you have to have some kind of connection with what you offer. And I think we, especially at the beginning, we were sensitive to like not knowing at all who would listen to us. And um, so, okay, let's, let's try something we are um, comfortable with, at least an audience like us. And I guess it spread a little bit, uh, but yeah, we have no idea. We don't know how people know we exist and we don't know. Yeah. So. We just know some people do listen, and but that's uh, fine with us. Whoever's yes, desire great. leads them there, leads them to you. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> maybe Facebook and Twitter algorithm, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, that can help too. <laughs> mm -hmm. And maybe we could talk a little bit about what you've seen the difference um, about psychoanalysis in France versus the States, for example. Because for me, um, I was training in, in New York but it was really through a friend of mine who did her training in France, who lived in, who lived in New York, and talking to her about um, a very specific case of, of someone. Um, and then her like consulting with like people, colleagues in France and her, her old supervisor in France, and like really helped me to kind of open my perspective of what was going on in this case, where, whereas I felt the view that I was getting from my supervisors was so narrow and like, Still, even though it was a psychoanalytic institute, it was still very like medical model, like mental health medical model, US kind of structures of like diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And uh, it really wasn't mm -hmm. helping me. And really through her eyes and like her kind of consulting with me on this case, just totally opened my eyes to, to that perspective. And then I ended up leaving the institute that I was at and training with the Lacanians instead. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Mm -hmm. Well, there are other um, schools uh, in psychoanalysis uh, than the Lacanian in France. It's true that it has a, a big influence, but that's not all there is. Um, what uh, I mean, it's I, I can't really articulate everything that felt different, but let me give you examples as they come up. Um, I would say, and that's something we've been trying to do uh, in discussions on psychoanalysis a lot, is uh, I, my experience of psychoanalysis in France is that it's a lot more inclusive. Uh, it's, there's no debate, I think, in France around the question of whether or not you should include social considerations into your practice. 
No, I don't, I, I don't remember any debate around that. They might be in some obscure orthodox groups, but not at all where I, um, the, the world around me back then. While in the US, it seems like even if intellectually some people understand that if you're poor, if you're wealthy, if you're this or that, then you will have a different approach to the world. Still, it seems like the, uh, as you said, and what, what I hear is there's some kind of a medical understanding of psychoanalysis come through as a legitimate discourse. And then it, you have this tendency. And I, I insist again, with connected to an intellectual understanding of the importance of including other perspective, you still have then a, a tendency of um, bringing uh, forcefully and uh, the theory, the psychoanalytic theory as a standalone and apply mm -hmm. that abruptly to your patients. And then at the same time, I am really insisting because then it, because I, I uh, you will have social consideration. I insist because this um, split, as I would refer to a split, might not be technically exact, but the split uh, was very disturbing to me because I could hear people saying one thing and then the second later use their um, position as psychoanalyst and their knowledge as psychoanalyst in a way that did not include what they just mentioned before. And so that in France really was, uh, yeah, we didn't have that. Also, I was, I think, lucky enough to be uh, trained in France in a university, meaning that I was uh, taught by people who were paid a sufficiently good enough salary to teach and to learn and to train uh, for us. And so they could bring digested knowledge like I experienced, I didn't really have except maybe two or three uh, instructors in the US. In the US, you could really feel like the psychoanalysis is a narrow field where people struggle to mm -hmm. keep it alive. So mm -hmm. you work in your own practice during the day, then you go teach for a miserable salary or a stipend to people who are tired at night. And then you don't have the energy, you don't have the time, you don't have the income to say, okay, I have two months off now, I'm gonna rush and I mean, I'm gonna go deep into Ferenczi and try to understand him and try to have discussions. You don't have time for that. And I think that has uh, an influence in the way psychoanalysis is taught in, in the sense that it becomes the burden of complexity is uh, pushed towards the students. While when I was in France, you would still need to read uh, the authors. You would still need to uh, go deep into the, the understanding of what was happening, what, was, uh, tr what the author tried to share. But you would have a professor really digest, compare, bring back, uh, position things in a, in a timeline, compare them with different authors in a subtle way. That uh, I think I, I missed completely. And the, the last thing that comes to my mind is that in France, um, even if psychoanalysis is disputed, uh, is attacked, uh, and has been attacked and is still attacked, uh, it is a lot less so than in the US. In, in France, if you, if you listen to some public intellectual radio, you will often hear a psychoanalyst who will talk about whatever happening from psychoanalytic perspective. Whether it's relevant or not is a different question, but 
the, the fact that the talk makes psychoanalysis relevant. And you can practice psychoanalysis in a lot of different frames. Uh, in France, I did very little, um, um, how to say, like therapy, therapy, like one-on-one -on -one therapy. Most of my work was institutional work. I would have um, what we call residents. It's not medical resident, but residents. And you, would, you work in a facility. So you do some workshop. Then I was uh, also training the, so as a psychologist, I was uh, a bit higher on the authority, um, like hierarchy. So I would have, I, I would have I, one of my goal was to train the people who um, directly work with the residents. I personally like to, to work with residents, so I would do that. It's not up to, not every psychologist do it, but, and so I would have a direct practice. I would have, I would supervise them. Uh, I would also engage into thinking about how the institute works, function, like the rules of it. And so all those things create a very different approach, I believe, to psychoanalysis that seems in the US. I, I know there are some places where they try to do that. I can't remember the name right now. But in the US, it's pretty much one-on-one -on -one or, I mean, it's, it's all, always mostly in, a, in an office and people seemed unable to imagine how different it could be and what it means to uh, use psychoanalysis elsewhere. And then I'm going to stop but, um, on that subject. But when I was training at NPAP, at some point I became MITO chair, meaning that I was the head of the group that represents the students, the candidates or members in training, as uh, sometimes we say at NPAP. And I was struck by the fact that members were not really um, applying psychoanalytic principle, um, not in terms of treatment, but in terms of uh, moral ideas to the way uh, candidates were treated. And to me, it's a nonsense. If you work in an institute, especially in psychoanalytic institutes, but anywhere, you should, you should not analyze people but you should have in mind some of the psychoanalytic principles, some of the psychoanalytic values, if we can talk about it this way, and apply them uh, very simply, like treat people with respect, uh, be aware of uh, the power dynamics, uh, be aware of potential transference, don't weaponize them, but be aware of them, you know, be aware of possible uh, demands that can be unspoken, don't weaponize them again, but be aware of them, you know? And that seemed like people, and I think it's still, I mean, I'm pretty sure it's still the case. They don't really have the imagination or maybe the availability to apply it to the structure. So, yeah. Did you want to say something, Edgard? Uh, just to, uh in terms of comparison and contrast, uh, I grew up in a place where psychoanalysis is not part of the, uh, it, it's unheard of psychoanalysis in, in, in Puerto Rico. Uh, most of the therapies are conducted by psychologists, but they are trained as uh, in behavioral uh, theories and methodologies. Um, so, uh, but I had the uh, at some point in my in my life back in Puerto Rico I had the the 
great opportunity of being in treatment with uh, psychoanalysts, uh, one of the few in the island um, who had trained in, in New York. Um, so that, that was my encounter with psychoanalysis. Uh, uh, so just to distinction here, uh, in some Latin American countries, there's a, 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 a tradition, a psychoanalytic tradition, uh, where I come from, that is not the case. Uh, in fact, mental health services, uh, therapy, psychotherapy in general is seen as uh, alien um, and something that says more about weakness than anything else. So people don't go to, to therapy. Um, so my, my experience uh, compared to Gregoire was completely, completely different. So I come to, to live in, in New York. And and then I'm uh, I'm impacted by by the ways uh, that psychoanalysis compared to my experience in the in Puerto Rico, and New York City was you know a, quite uh, a place where you could engage with a lot of people, um, and there are institutes, and I thought that was fascinating. So certainly. Uh, uh, you can see quite a difference between Gregoire and myself in terms of how we, we see or the lens we use to see uh, psychoanalysis in, in the United States. I come from a place of deficiency, meaning that uh, it's, it's unheard to talk about uh, psychoanalysis in Puerto Rico. I come to New York where uh, there are still some traditions uh, in, in, in place. Yeah. Yeah, New York is very rich for psychoanalysis in the U.S. Um, I didn't mm -hmm. appreciate it enough until I came here. And there are, there's a Swedish psychoanalytic institute and there are some Lacanian psychoanalysts in Gothenburg, which is like a, a, a town like uh, three hours away from the capital. Um, so mm -hmm. they, there are some analysts, but it's not like really accepted by the culture. And it's um, mm -hmm. they're very they're very kind of rare. Yeah, I had mistakenly thought that it was very psychoanalytic, but that's because I was basing my idea of Sweden on my husband. And my husband oh. was in analysis for four and a half years, five days a week. He did like the real like five day a week mm. Freudian analysis. Mm -hmm. um, and so I thought, wow, I'm going to a place where everyone loves psychoanalysis. <laughs> um, but that's not the okay. case anymore. And even though it wasn't that, I think he did his in like 2004 to 2008. So it wasn't that long ago. But in that period of time, it's like really shifted. And the only way you can mm -hmm. really see an analyst, at least, you know, they're, all their medical care is through the government. Um, and you can, you can see an analyst private pay, of course. Um, but the only way you can see someone like through their mental health care is if they're a psychiatrist then, then oh, the psychiatrist can like prescribe psychoanalytic treatment. Oh, no. maybe uh, in France, the, the, there's a distinction that, yeah, that I don't make that uh, is maybe important for a US American audience is that um, psychoanalysis is not, is mostly practiced by psychologists. So mm -hmm. yeah, if you go see someone uh, and you want, I mean, if you go see a psychoanalyst per se, then it's gonna be out of pocket. But if you go to some specific public institute and you see a psychologist, most likely they will have been trained 
uh, in psychoanalysis and you will receive a psychoanalytic uh, therapy, not a psychoanalysis mm -hmm. as your husband right. uh, received, but something with uh, where people listen to the unconscious and everything that comes mm -hmm. with it. That's great. Mm -hmm. And when I started training, I'm from Miami originally. Um, so mm -hmm. I went to grad school down there. And when I went to grad school for psychology, I had assumed that everyone was kind of trained analytically, <laughs> which is not the case. Yeah. Um, but no. that's what I had thought going in. And then I was like, where's Freud? <laughs> He's not there anymore. It's a good no. question. After. <laughs> 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 where it's Freud <laughs> well. but it's really great to hear though that the psychologists are trained analytically and also like like you said in more clinics because that was the case with the the certain case I was talking about that I brought to a friend mm -hmm. um was in a hospital I was working in a hospital and mm -hmm. um a place where you definitely wouldn't find psychoanalytic thinking and I really needed the psychoanalytic thinking to work with him even though we were in a hospital setting in my supervisor was basically like no 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 you can't do that like you have to just have him fill out these this paperwork and you know mark the happy faces of like zero to oh, ten okay. and all that kind of thing and I just mm. really couldn't treat I just can't treat adults that way I can't have like an I can't like sit with an adult and have them like fill out these forms of like how happy or sad they are and these kinds of things I mean it's like so infantilizing mm -hmm. yes it is. And I guess it's, it's the question of treat uh, is then in question that it's, is it really treating people or is it more like some kind of managerial uh, dimension where you mm. just, um, you deal with the symptoms and you move on. You don't, I mean, that happens. I have to say, I was the, the describing a very beautiful picture of France. It happens in France too. No, no problem <laughs> about that. It's, it's not a perfect place. <laughs> But they do have, um, I met through her, through Manya, I'm talking about Manya Steinkohler is the person I was talking to, and I met through Manya um, Gidana, who like really worked with people uh, in like hospital settings and like set up a different way of like residential treatment where people had a lot more freedom to like move within the buildings and the structures, even though they were like living in this area. Mm. Yeah, well, you try to create life to create desire you know to reanimate that it doesn't have to be the desire in the like and term but something where people become subject of themselves and not just uh, um, tools that have to go one place and then the other and show society that they are well functioning but that that requires so much more work and you do need the institutional support you can't just do that by yourself in your office that's for sure Um, so how did you all become interested in psychoanalysis in the first place? Oh, uh, well, in my, in my case, um, I, I come from the natural sciences um, and I was uh, trained as a chemist. Uh, and, Not and only taught. trained. Oh, yeah. yeah okay, well, go ahead. <laughs> and taught. Uh, chemistry at the University of Puerto Rico for about 16 years or so. Uh, so I, I was very much grounded in the, in the order and the mechanics of uh, natural sciences. 
uh, until, of course, my as it happens, life happens, and <laughs> and then I, I I thought that my you know the security I had needed to be deconstructed and needed to explore exactly what I wanted in my life, and I went to to psychotherapy with the uh, as I mentioned with the fantastic uh, coincidence that the psychotherapist that I was referred by a, a, a friend uh, was a psychoanalyst. And uh, the, the interesting thing is that he was a psychoanalyst and yet he was a professor of psychology at the University of Puerto Rico. So uh, of course a minority <laughs> within the, the psychology department at the university, uh, but still a, a very, you know, it, uh, I wouldn't say a classical Freudian, but a somewhat Freudian, whatever the somewhat is. Um, and that, that was my first encounter with, with psychoanalysis. And it was very rich. It was very, uh, it was a life-changing experience. And uh, it allowed me to name what was unnamed at that point for me. Uh, and it also created a, a, a deep curiosity about the my inner world and inner world of other people. So little by little, transition uh, to a less um, mechanic perspective of the world and of people. Meaning, I moved away from the natural sciences. I I went, in fact went through uh, theology, uh, began to study the, human, the humanities, uh, philosophy, theology. Uh, uh, I decided to get out of the island, moved to New York City, and, and then I began to train uh, as a psychoanalyst. So in the, on the surface, it was because my world began to shift and I needed to find a way to understand myself and, and understand the world I was living in. So that that's what uh, brought me to, to psychotherapy um, and to psychoanalysis, yeah. I love it. I love pe hearing people's journeys. They're all so different. Mm -hmm. Well, on my side, um, how did that happen? Um, I mean, I was, I was, I'm going to start with the fact that as uh, I think Edgar was um, uh, indicating, it's, it's a journey that starts probably way before we know it starts. Like, uh, mm -hmm. And yeah. things eventually take shape and we, we resonate with some occasions that are brought to us by life around us. Um, so for me, I was, after I finished high school, um, I went to law school. So in, in France, you when you finish high school, you directly go to university and you specialized right away, at least back then. I think now it's slightly different, but still. So I went to law school for four years and um, I, um, I didn't like it. Uh, I struggled a lot. I was studying a lot and I never really got into it. I mean, I was, um, I guess I was upset by the inconsistency of law and how things change because someone say, oh no, we understand this word this way. Oh man, I was so, so tired of it. And um, I had also undergone 
um, therapy uh, with a psychoanalyst, psychiatrist, psychoanalyst. I think the last year, or the last two years um, being uh, in law school. And I had my, my best friend had moved from um, a university where he studied uh, philosophy to a university where he studied um, to become a psychoanalyst, a psychologist. Uh, and to learn uh, where he learned uh, psycho psychoanalysis. And he mentioned that to me a few times. And I thought, well, that's, uh, that's interesting, but uh, can you make a living of that? And my head, of course, the answer was no. <laughs> so I uh, didn't want to pursue that. And I thought, okay, so good for him. And I'm going to stay in law because in law, my, my life is more secure, etc. Even if it didn't make any sense. And eventually it made so little sense. Um, that I decided to stop law and to go to sociology. And uh, when I, um, I really, it, uh, the shift happened at one specific moment. I went to uh, register and I bought the forms and the person at the administration uh, <clears throat> told me, oh, I know, basically, I know you are legally, uh, we are legally uh, bind to allow you in sociology because you did your you have your degree in law but just so you know there are so many of you that uh, we're gonna have to we probably this is gonna be uh, it's gonna be harder to stay the following years uh well i guess i i don't even know if i i, I think i took my forms back and i left and i thought this is too fucked up I spent four years of my life uh, working, uh, studying like crazy, something I didn't like. I don't want to go to something I like where there will be artificial pressure because for administrative reasons, they don't have enough room for the students who apply. And at the same time, my friend who was uh, uh, in learning psychoanalysis, uh, lent me introductions to psychoanalysis from Freud. And so it was summertime. Well, I read a lot of it and I kept thinking, man, that, that's it. That's it. That, uh, that's, that's wonderful. That makes sense. That's interesting. Uh, it's intellectually stimulating. And so I applied to, uh, very late to, um, to be a, a student in uh, psychology. And I got accepted and this is uh, how it started. Wonderful. I love it. <laughs> And how did you two meet? We met well, in our uh, institute. We met uh, in the class Edgar was referring to at the beginning of the podcast. Yeah. The dream. Was it dream? Yeah, it was. It dream. was dream. <laughs> yeah. Dream interpretation yeah, <laughs> class. Wonderful. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, the four of us, there were many, there were other candidates in, in the, in the class why did we but talk I, to each other i don't remember i don't remember i, remember well, I don't you. remember what i had but uh so <laughs> i don't recall i don't i cannot recall what uh, what brought us together except that probably our accents were different <laughs> and we somehow connected to each other uh maybe i i don't know i don't recall i don't remember but I that's how we, you, we met. Yeah, I remember you, you uh -huh. know, um, so I was, I, I had been in the US for a year and 
uh, Edgar and another uh, member in training mentioned something about them being uh, look like as um, brown or sp Spanish or no, uh, whatever, not white. Uh -huh. And I'm still, I'm, I have to say, I'm still not very, um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm still disconnected from the way Americans see race and company. But anyway, mm -hmm. and I remember telling Edgar and this other woman, like, but uh, no, look at you. You're just as white as me. And Edgar <laughs> turned toward me angrily, not in the US. <laughs> and and the, the other girl said, yeah, this country is fucked up. And... <laughs> <laughs> which I agree with and still do. Uh, and, um, and I think, I mean, I, I guess then probably we had a sense that we, uh, we didn't fit completely the expectations. Mm -hmm. Probably yeah. Tina and Peter also, mm -hmm. uh, for whatever reason. I think you guys came to me and asked, and I was like, oh, sure. Uh, <laughs> I'm happy to have friends. Please come in. Because uh, <laughs> at that time I was very isolated in the US. I didn't know anyone, and and uh, yeah, I, I I think I appreciate. I, I at least I was sensitive to how the three of them were um, critical. Like I I don't feel safe with people who are too uh, eager to please, eager to be to agree with. Uh, the master. Mm -hmm. I feel safer with people who are complaining, who see when something is off or something is uh, something is said but not acted on. Mm -hmm. Then I feel safer, and I think I felt uh, felt that with the three. Well, of them. It's intriguing. I, I I don't I don't recall the uh, me well. well I, me I still responding see you, to you with I anger, see your face. <laughs> Yeah, of course, of course. And, and when you say it, it makes, you know, uh, even if I don't remember the specific moment, yeah, that sounds like me. Yeah. You yeah. Know? <laughs> it does sound you like me. You were not happy. Uh, uh, and yeah. for right reasons. Yeah. So that's how that's how we met. And yeah. We and I guess we, we stuck together. together through meeting regularly at mm -hmm. people's house. and Yeah. So we would, we would meet uh, up uh usually on a monthly basis sometimes more often uh we would have a meal together and then we would talk about the training we would complain we would dream we, we would commiserate with each other uh uh we also uh would um share clinical uh material with each other listen to how the other uh hears the material um so so it, it was it it has been quite a rich experience yeah mm -hmm. yes that's how it happened and it allowed us not to feel isolated i mean because um and probably protected uh, again, from some of the craziness uh, of the institute oh yeah as well as well yes i mean craziness uh, it's that... a very lonesome uh profession you know you are in the in your you are in your office. Uh, well, the three of us right now are in different offices, not in the same office, and we are doing this across the ocean. Um, but then here, yeah, when we are practicing, it's, it can be a lonesome experience. Uh, and I, I think the having these colleagues 
that were uh, and are um, critical of the training of society. We have uh, we use different lenses to see the world, both the inner world and the, the external world, and that has allowed us to be better clinicians. Let me put it my my own uh, experience. It has allowed me to be a better clinician. Uh, the experience of uh, meeting Gregoire and Tina and Peter. Yeah, I think it did for all of us. Yeah, we, yeah. we, we were able to, um, I mean, as much as we could, but uh, to feel safe and to be critical towards the Institute or other things, but also um, toward ourselves. Uh, yes. And still know that we could speak freely and feel safe about, um, um, yeah, whatever difficulties we had and some of the preconception we had and work on it and um, we, I mean, uh, Tina comes from Germany. She studied psychology there too, or sociology also, I think. Uh, uh, Peter also had a law degree and he was uh, a lawyer before and copyright, I think something like that. And so we all came with very, um, I would say established uh, life before and we mm -hmm. could then feed that into our reflection and into our uh, discussions. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. And I think yeah. we, we liked it. Yeah, that's a really interesting point as well. Not just different cultures, but you all had these kind of different careers before and then all mm -hmm. coming to psychoanalysis and bringing all of that into the mix. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 That's really great. Well, I'm really glad you did. And I'm glad you have your podcast. And I can say, I mean, just since I'm thinking of my training, I started training in 2010. And I'm thinking, mm -hmm. I wish I had these podcasts and these things that we're doing and that other people are mm -hmm. doing then. Because even though that was only 11 years ago, it was like, I feel like for me, it was like in a psychoanalytic desert, you know, <laughs> it's like, oh, it I didn't, I didn't know we were allowed to question the Institute, you know, I was like very much in this mm -hmm. like authoritarian structure there. And I feel like it seems to have bloomed so much since then. Yes. Well, you know, yes. I think my, uh, if I owe something or yeah, to my, um, to spending some years in law school is that I really learn, uh, how um, symbolic power is. It's a bunch of words. It's uh, rules. It's, uh, you, you have rules in a game. You have the constitution. And then you have more space. But it's all determined by human beings. Mm. It's nothing that is, I mean, some people might believe it comes from a, a divine entity. Well, it's not my, I don't share that idea. And so to me, I, I don't, when when an authority doesn't seem legitimate to me, I feel very safe feeling so and expressing it. But and I anyway, just uh, and I think law really helped me on that to see how ridiculous something sometimes it is to say, oh, but the law said that or the law, oh yeah, but rewrite the law if it, if the law is not good, rewrite <laughs> it. I mean, really, it's it's uh, it's not something that has to stay forever. And, mm -hmm. But yeah, the podcast and all the videos today, it's such a different field than it was uh, 10, 11 years ago. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we could, I could have a whole hour just complaining about the institutes. <laughs> Maybe one day. I recently had like a panel where I had uh, Sheldon George and Derek Cook 
um, Michelle Stevens and Sheila Cavanaugh, they talked about a book that uh, Sheldon and Derek edited and then and then Michelle and Sheila had contributed to and mm-hmm. had kind of like a group discussion. And then I thought maybe I should start having like topics and like inviting multiple people in to talk about like different topics like the institutes or like different different things in the field. That could be really fun as well. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you, you might not want to unleash too much anger, so you, <laughs> you need people who will feel uh, can contain it. Yeah. Well, just to let the people that are training now know that there are options. <laughs> there are options yes. in many ways towards being a psychoanalyst mm-hmm. and many different theories mm-hmm. and many different ways mm-hmm. to do it. I mean, they, I, I believe I, that... I, I, I think... oh, go ahead, you go. Uh, just to to mention this about the rules and the laws, you know the the one of the challenges uh, now at, at least in New York State is that we are under the law, <laughs> meaning our our profession is is uh, licensed, uh, and in what ways we have gained or in what ways we have lost, and uh, of course, in both ways. Uh, Something has been gained, something has been lost. Uh, but then again, when when an institute says, "Oh, but this is what the the state requires," then how are we uh, minimizing the the potential of psychoanalysis by uh, creating this kind of discourse where the state dictates? Uh, yeah, but that, so, that may be your yeah. American perception. Coming from France, okay. yeah, go ahead. <laughs> where the state is not uh, not necessarily. I mean, lately with Macron and others, uh, may I change, but uh, as an enemy, uh, I, mm-hmm. I feel like the, the 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 question of the state requirements are not necessarily an issue per se. I, I mm-hmm. studied in a university where there was state requirements, uh, but the the state when the state only says, well, you should teach them, taught, teach them this or that. That's one thing. They don't necessarily ask you how to teach it. And I feel like that that's where the space mm-hmm. is. Um, and so um, in the question of whether or not we lost with licensing, my sense is in the US, we didn't lose anything because uh, the, there's no, the psychoanalysis doesn't have enough strength to survive by itself. And licensing allows us to be available to a lot more people. And that's how it spreads. And if you, if you want to, the institutes then are really completely free to use um, whatever title the classes is to teach what they want. And the state is not going to look at every, like how every class is happening. Of course, you should uh, should follow something because people need to know a certain amount of things and uh, to be aware of uh, a certain amount of things to practice safely for them and for their patients. But within the class, I mean, you can be very free in the way you teach it. Mm-hmm. That, that I think is because, as I, again, of what I mentioned earlier, I think the, the, there is a lack often, not always, of available space because people are tired. And then I think that is more problematic. The, the, the lack of funding to me is more problematic than the intervention of the state to say, because if you look at mm-hmm. currently what they're asking us to teach, Actually, uh, let's remember that it is because of New York State that now Psychoanalytic Institute have to include the social in their teaching. 
true. Yeah. I think, uh, again, coming from a different background, while I was professor at the university, I, uh, and then a dean also, then I, I had to, to navigate licensing and requirements of external entities that would impose on the uh, university uh, a certain structure. So that's where I'm coming from. Okay. Uh, and um, in that sense, it will constrain and constrict the capacity of the university to be uh, a, a place where we can be more creative. And so how do you balance creative forces with a, uh, an, an, an external entity, such as a, uh, an agency that is saying, we will accredit you or not, mm-hmm. we will, your, your, your master's, your doctoral degrees are uh, accredited or not. How do you balance these two things? Um, and it's a difficult and political, I would say, uh, uh, process. Um, how to balance these two is a, becomes a political process. So I, I think it happens also with psychoanalysis in New York State. Um, and I, I don't want to lose that, uh, the, the capacity to be creative within the constraints of the state. How do we do that? Do we have to do it? Do, uh, yeah, I mean, that, those are the fundamental questions. To. Yes, as an I'm instructor, sorry? you would have to, yeah. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, so that reminds me that uh, going back to the very beginning of the podcast is that a big difference in the training in France is that uh, we, we are not only taught psychoanalysis for adults and functioning adults. I was very struck by the fact that in the US, you had to go to very specific places to be taught for children, adolescents, and also for old people. And I think this is a very big issue because when you are working with an adult, you are working with their past and you are working with their expected future. And if you have no idea how a child or a teenager function, you, it doesn't mean that you won't be able to work with those people, with adults, but you will miss. Mm-hmm. You will miss some aspect of uh, what, uh, how it's, to connect the, psycho, the, the psychical dynamic with a certain memory. Because when adults remember the childhood, of course, it's transformed by their adulthood. But it does come from a place where the psychical equilibrium was not the same, where the importance of um, uh, projection and identification with uh, parental figures was completely different. And if... I mean, yeah, I, I, I felt that the fact that in the classes they did not include some reflection, some idea, some clues about, okay, so this is for adults, but hey guys, keep in mind that maybe for children, you have this and that. I think that was really missing. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. Well, we only have a few minutes and I know you all have to work. Was there anything mm-hmm. else you wanted to say before we wrapped up? Mm. Um, yeah. I, I'm good. What about you, Gregoire? Well, I could, uh, I could mention something. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know how relevant it is, but I find do, doing the podcast, I found it interesting to see the disconnection between 
um, the listeners and the investment. Meaning, we early in the life of the podcast, we did um, two podcasts on the, the Japanese comics and some of my mm -hmm. thoughts around somehow some specific Japanese comics could be, uh, by, because of their structure, helpful to teenagers to be and teenagers to become adults. We, th those podcasts are the least listened to, yet they created the most uh, reaction with people writing to us, commenting, etc. And mm -hmm. well, just, just to point out that it's, it is, uh, as we said, we don't really know what our, who our audience is. Um, I still am a bit clueless regarding how internet works <laughs> in this area. Why do people do that? Uh, why do people listen? I mean, we have one where we have a lot of uh, listeners and nobody wrote to us at all. Uh, and mm -hmm. I, I don't, so I don't really understand the group or the, yeah, the group dynamic among the listeners. So that's also one of the reasons why when we record Postcat, when we decide on theme, we just do what we think we would like to hear first because yeah. we don't understand this mass that's listening to us sometime. That's what I want. Yeah, well, I think that's perfect. Just do what you want to hear. And then, you know, whoever listens, listens, you know? Mm -hmm. That's the best yeah. thing to do. Now, not to worry about the audience. That's the best artists do that. They just no. make what they make, and they don't worry about the audience. My good. Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Vanessa. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you for the invitation. It's been wonderful. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Grégoire Pierre and Edgard Danielson. Be sure to check out their websites and follow their podcast, Discussions on Psychoanalysis. Streaming at podcast platforms everywhere. You can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. And now a track from the album Lunacy, the original soundtrack to the film of the same name created by Carl Abrahamson and myself. You can listen to the soundtrack at our band camp, Vanessa Sinclair, Carl Abrahamson.bandcamp.com. And you can view the film on our Vimeo. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Enjoy.
up, that's, that's the, the task of me, work things out, and, and they didn't, didn't even have to. Man, am, am I that? Resources to supplement formal training with what they fear most, by a heart of stone. You, of many books, where shame is chiseled, when the sun sets, we are wrapped in darkness and despair. Space is empty, black, enormous, almost invisible. His life containing a myriad of tiny, tiny starlights and allegedly filled with devouring black holes came to experiments, threatening asteroids and aliens, Cycles. It direct, tangible ways. We 
we take the sun for granted and act the same, adapt our lives and cultures around it. An energy embodies the moon, affects us by reflected light, and timelessness and purity. Relish magnetic force, quite a different story. Let me know what life the moon regulates it and see exposing ourselves began staging me, thereby controlling human destiny to a greater and more tangible extent. We who brought thee of the future will know their kind. Embellish human existence, but the convention forbids body corresponds to thee, present throughout. In the neural form of the occulted, tissue that structures, binds, and supports.